0: God, we thank you for uh, the beauty of a Sunday morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the power of just your church family gathering together. Uh, Lord, there are so many churches, not only here at College Park Fishers, but in our community that are gathering even uh, during this moment. Lord, churches that will be proclaiming your word and the beauty of the gospel. And God, we, just, we lift them up to you. We thank you for them, Lord, churches like Grace and Heartland and Hamilton Hills and Christ Community and Northview, so many churches, God, in this community that are going to proclaim your word. And we pray, God, that your word would, would move in power in those congregations. God, would you, would you save people in those churches? Would you draw people to Christ? And God, we pray, uh, even as we open up your word here in the next couple of moments, God, I pray, um, Lord, a difficult text, Lord, specifically for husbands today. Lord, would you fill the men in this room with an openness, a humility? Lord, help us to receive what you have to say to us. As I preach this, I, I feel my own failures and my own weaknesses. And so, God, would you remind me who I am in Christ? Would you remind me that my identity is found in the finished work of Christ? Lord, help me to preach out. Of that reality i pray in jesus name amen <clears throat> well we are on week three of four in this sermon series on biblical manhood and womanhood and over the last uh, couple of weeks we have tried to lay a foundation of how we think about gender roles and gender identity and we have established the facts already from genesis 1 2 and 3 that god has created both men and women in his image and that has specific implications, that for men and women, we have been created in his image, meaning that we have equal worth and value, we have distinct roles, but we're also mutually dependent upon one another, that we complement each other. And so we have established the fact that men and women are not interchangeable in their form, okay, in their body parts or gender, and they're not interchangeable in their function or in their uh, roles. Now, as I've stated in the last couple of weeks, I know that this position is, is rejected generally in the world in which we live in. I, I get that, I know that. But, but even within the church, in many churches, this is becoming uh, more and more unpopular. Even within Christian circles, and as I talk to, to different people in different camps within Christianity, even if people accept the fact that men and women are different Uh, Many Christians aren't really sure what those differences are. Like some Christians believe, okay, here's the the box for biblical manhood, here's the box for biblical womanhood, but I'm not really sure what goes in those boxes, right? I think they're different, but I'm not really sure. I'm not able to parse out those differences. And so today and next week, I'm going to attempt to put things into the box of biblical manhood and into the box of biblical womanhood. I'm going to attempt, through God's Word, to describe the uh, complementarian function within marriage. And just a warning, it's it's far deeper than just different body parts and different plumbing. Okay, we're going to focus on the, the role of the husband today and look at some things that I think are in this text and even elsewhere where we can put some specific characteristics and specific things that, that the, the, husbands, uh, the husbands are called to do. And the next week we'll get to uh, the wife. Now before we do that, we really need to establish what the purpose of marriage actually is or this is not going to make sense at all. So I want you to think with me for a moment. If you've ever seen the movie uh, Jerry Maguire, okay, you don't have to raise your hands in case you're embarrassed by that, but this is a uh, classic chick flick movie. Right, it has that classic line in that movie. If you've never seen it, it's a movie that stars uh, Joel Israel, I mean I mean Tom Cruise, sorry. And, uh, and, and there's a scene in that movie where Jerry Maguire is really trying to win his wife back and, and comes to his wife Dorothy, and I think they're in the family room there, and, and you know, Tom Cruise lays out this really compelling speech. And in that scene, he, he you know, uses that classic line of, you complete me right? If you've ever seen that movie, Husbands, you've jotted that line down. You've probably used it in your own marriage from time to time, or maybe not. Um, but the wife, like, cuts him off or whatever and, and responds and says, shut up, shut up. You, you had me at hello. You know, she's crying. She's like, you had me at hello. And if you've never seen the movie, like, it's a, it's a very powerful scene. Like, I can't do its justice because I don't look like Joel uh, or have the emotions behind it. But there are, there are movies like that in our culture. There are these cultural messages that I would say are so powerful that it has the ability to disciple us and even to convince us about what the purpose of marriage is all about. Like, from that movie, it's easy to conclude that the purpose of marriage is to find somebody that completes you, as if you have been made unfinished or inadequate, and this person offers something to the table that you're lacking. Now, the question that I want to introduce to us this morning is, is that really what we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2 so far? As we've been created in God's image, did God stand back and say that there was something lacking or unfinished or incomplete here that only a spouse can come in and fulfill? Look, from my perspective, I think that we have um, in our culture, even within Christianity, three really popular reasons why people get married. I think, number one, people get married because of what I'll describe as cultural conformity, where they'll, they'll say to themselves, my parents got married, my grandparents got married, and so I'm going to get married, right? My friends in this stage of life all got married, so this just kind of makes sense to, to get married. This is what's going to give me purpose. Or, secondly, they get married because of happiness, Or they say, this person does complete me. I can't live without this person. This person makes me happy and satisfied. I'm attracted to this person. This person makes me, uh, we we have fun together. That's kind of reason number two. And the reason number three uh, is what I'll kind of call convenience or pragmatism. Where you kind of look at this person, you're like, well, I enjoy you. I think we'll be financially stable together. You know, we'll we'll make cute babies together. You're, you know, you're going to be a good father. You're a good cook. All that thing. And so just basically convenience or pragmatism, people step into this covenant relationship. Now, those three reasons, please hear me, are not bad reasons in and of, of themselves as long as they are secondary reasons for getting married. I think that there is a primary reason why you should step into this covenant relationship uh, with a spouse. And I'll kind of word it this way, that I think that marriage is God's sacred workshop to transform you into uh, the image of Jesus Christ that remember as we've been talking about you know what it looks like to be a man what it looks like to be a woman in Genesis 1 and 2 we learn that we've been created in God's image and so because of that i think this lays kind of the foundation for why you should get married because of the reality of Genesis 3 Genesis 3 came in and we see sin entered the world and sin has distorted And has tainted this image that we carry. And so what Jesus does is Jesus renews and he restores this distorted image that we all have. Look, I want to be clear that Jesus does this in all kinds of different ways, even outside of marriage And so if you're single this morning, you have not missed the boat for your sanctification, that God transforms you and renews that image in several different arenas. But if you are married this morning, I think that God primarily and most effectively transforms you into the image of Jesus in the laboratory of marriage. That this wonderful, sacred workshop is where God goes to work in rooting out sin and idolatry so that you look more and more like Jesus Christ. And so the reason why we're going to be in Ephesians 5 today and next week is because I think Paul lays out the purpose of marriage in this passage that lines up with that kind of line of reasoning so if you look at Ephesians 5, for example, in verses 31 and 32, I think Paul kind of speaks into the purpose of marriage. Look with me at verses 31 and 32. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this. He says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you see it there? You see the purpose that Paul lays out for this one flesh union between these two sinners, husband and wife, leaving and cleaving, is so that they come together and they become this visible display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he gets to the end of explaining the role of the wife, the role of the husband, so that as people look at your marriage, they will see Jesus' love for the church and the church's ability to follow the leadership of Jesus Christ. That that's what Christian marriage is actually all about. That it exists to reveal this mystery of God's love for his people. Now just a question for you before we dive into The specifics today is Do you view your spouse as a gift from the Lord that God will use as the primary tool in order to transform you into the image of Jesus Christ? Like, is that how you view your spouse? Not as someone that you're gonna make babies with and do life with and have all of these wonderful memories with. But do you view your spouse as the primary tool that God is going to use to root out the sin and the idolatry and further sanctify you and transform you into the image of Jesus? Look, this is God's agenda for marriage. He wants to transform you and then display you to those around you that you might be a visible icon of the gospel. This is incredibly important. If you miss the purpose of marriage, when we get into the roles here, this is not going to make any sense at all. In fact, if you don't understand the purpose here, you're going to hear the specifics of the roles of leadership, submission, dying to self, following, and you're going to have a wall up. You're going to say, that doesn't make sense. That's not pragmatic. That's not what the culture says around me. That's not what I want to do. And you're going to have that posture if you miss that what God wants to do is not to bring a bunch of happiness into your life through marriage, although that will come. He wants to transform you into the image of Jesus. This is his workshop. And so with that in mind, husbands, let's get into our role uh, more specifically here and jump into verses 22 uh, through 25. And over the next couple of minutes, I'm just going to lay a foundation for, uh, f- for the husbands and talk about the headship and what this actually means. So look with me at verses 22 through 25. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, let me just pause there for a moment. I want you to pay special attention to verse 23 for a moment. I think what Paul does in verse 23 is he grounds both the husband's role, which he'll unpack here throughout this passage, and he grounds the wife's role to submit to her husband. The reason why I know that is because verse 23 begins with the word for. So Paul is saying, wives, submit to your husbands for or because the head, or, or the, uh, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So he's grounding this idea of submission and then the husband's role in the idea of headship. Okay, Paul talks about the headship of the husband or the man elsewhere, like 1 Corinthians 11. And if you're familiar with that passage, you know that Paul actually grounds the headship of man in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And that tells us that the headship of man is not a cultural principle. This is a timeless principle for all people and all places. But what does the headship of the husband over the wife, what does that actually mean, right? Like that's kind of a a strange category as we talk about the role of the husband. Well, there are two main interpretations for what male headship means. That some believe it means source, meaning that women uh, came or come from man. That God first created Adam, and so logically speaking, all of the other women come from man. So it could mean source here. Others believe that headship means authority, meaning that the husband has the position and the responsibility of leadership over his wife. Now, I personally interpret headship here to mean authority because of just logical reasoning and common sense. Okay, what I mean by that is just think about what Paul is trying to say here on a very literal level. Okay, think about the head for a moment. Okay, think about the body the head is the location of the human brain. I know you don't need an anatomy lesson here, but just go with me. This is where the brain is. This is where we make decisions. This is the control and command center for the rest of the body. And so from there, I think it's a small and even a natural step to then apply it figuratively, what Paul is doing here, to to denote authority. Authority rather than trying to explain the head is the source by which the rest of our bodies come from, which doesn't make any biological sense. Now, furthermore, I think the way that Paul even uses headship of husband over the wife is he compares it to Jesus over the church. And whenever Paul uses it that way, it's always in an authoritative use. And so I think we can conclude here that headship means authority. Now, let's take this a step further, and and let's try to apply this to biblical manhood, okay? We looked at this even last week, and we defined biblical manhood as men living out God's beautiful design with a posture of humility and sacrifice to lovingly lead, provide, and protect. Okay, last week, we grounded that definition in Genesis 1 through 3, looking at those five foundational truths, but that definition is also grounded in this idea of headship. Now, it's a cute definition. It's, it's helpful. It's nice, but I want to, for the rest of our time here this morning, I want to take that a step further, and I want to practically apply that to the role of the husband here. Okay, this will kind of feel like a a job description uh, for the husband as we get into the specifics. Now remember, we're trying to put things into the box of biblical manhood. Okay, we've got headship as kind of the foundation here. And so let's begin to put things in there. Here's uh, number one. I think for the husband to fulfill his role, he needs to have a sacrificial leadership marked by dying to self. A sacrificial leadership marked by dying to self. Now, wives, we'll get to you next week and and we'll look at um, the S word, which is submission, look at what it is and what it's not. But before you conclude that you have the harder job in the marriage of submitting to, you know, maybe an incapable leader or sometimes ungodly leader, just take a look at the job description that Paul lays out for the husbands here that what Paul literally says here is that husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, and all the husbands just did a big gulp where they're sitting at because this is such a weighty call. Like, how did Jesus love the church? He literally died for her, right? He's always constantly putting the needs of others ahead of himself. And so look, men, I think what this means practically As we think about leadership within the home, this does not mean that we get our way every time. This does not mean that we treat our wives as if they're our servants and we just boss them around all of the time. In fact, when it it comes to preferences, men, you need to exercise your authority and your headship by dying to your preferences and desires in order to serve your wife. I heard that spiritual headship defined this way that spiritual headship is not license to do what you want to do, but it's actual empowerment to do what you ought to do. And for us husbands, what we ought to do is to leverage our authority, leverage our leadership, and to serve and even at times to defer to our wives. That sacrificial leadership is someone who takes initiative for the benefit of others. I remember trying to make sense of this uh, when I was engaged to Lindsay. And, you know, we're walking into, uh, you know, this beautiful chapter in our lives years ago called marriage. And so we went through premarital counseling and we had this session where the, the marriage um, mentor was talking about headship and leadership and submission from Ephesians 5. And, and for me, those are kind of new concepts for me as I was thinking through that. And so we're driving back to, to campus, and I remember turning to Lindsay and saying, man, that was, a, that was a pretty good session, don't you think? And she said, yeah, yeah, you know, it's all right. And, you know, for me, I'm like, okay, there's something there. Like, there's something underneath that. Like, so I'm like, okay, I need to lead here. What does it mean to lead? And so I, I turned to her, and I'm driving. I'm like, hey, I just want to ask you a question. When we get married, will you obey me? And and she, and I'm, you know, trying to drive here, and I can feel just like the heat coming. You know, her eyeballs are just staring at me. She didn't answer immediately. But then she said, no, I'm not going to obey you. I'm not your servant. And so it opened up like this huge dialogue about what does this actually look like? And, you know, over the course of our marriage, you know, we, we've had to really wrestle with what does this look like for me to lead and for her to follow? And I can tell you one thing that I've learned, this is completely free this morning, is that if you have to ask or demand your wife to follow you, that means that you're probably not leading very well. If you husbands are leading and loving and dying to self consistently your wife will gladly follow where you are taking her before the Lord. I remember reading again about this headship idea and you know it might be a new concept for you today but C.S. Lewis was trying to describe the headship of the husband over the wife and he said look in the arena of marriage when you think about this whole idea of headship what this means is that the husband wears the crown. Husbands wear the crown in marriage. But that crown is not made of gold. That crown is actually made of thorns. And he was alluding to John chapter 19 when Jesus Christ wore this crown of thorns before he got crucified and died to himself. Look, husbands, the way that we carry out the spiritual leadership of our home is we put on the crown of thorns each and every day and we die to our selfish desires and our preferences for the good of our wives and for the advancement of the gospel. Look, I know in my own marriage, my own uh, relationship with Lindsay, that in most disagreements, if I'm leading well, I'm losing most of them voluntarily. And I don't even have to try that hard because she's smarter than me. But the key, I think, question that should characterize our leadership in the home is this. How can I serve you? I think that's when leadership is at its best, is how can I exercise the gifts that God has given me for the betterment of my wife? Now, let's take this even a step further here. If you're tracking with me, you're trying to parse this out practically, let's think about what this looks like as far as making decisions together right? This is where kind of conflict comes about in our marriages. But I think decision-making is one of the best ways that husbands can demonstrate sacrificial leadership. Think about good leadership for a moment. Good, strong leadership is not the person who makes every single decision. The the best of leaders recognize the strengths and the gifts and the resources around him or her and, and, and delegates and empowers wherever he or she is weak, and so that principle, I think, should be applied even in our marriage where the husband is figuring out where is she strong, where am I weak, and how do we complement each other in order to make the best decision. However, when it comes to weighty and important decisions, okay, this isn't like what restaurant do we go out to eat after church, but these are decisions that I would describe as kind of these culture shapers of your home when you are trying to make decisions and the husband's here and the wife is over there and you seem you can't seem to agree and there's no good third option, I believe that because of the, the male headship within that marriage that the husband has the deciding vote to break the tie. And I believe that because of this mantle that we see in scripture that the husband is the head of the wife and is called to lead and to govern that marriage in a way that best honors the Lord. I heard uh, Tony Evans, who's a, a preacher, describe spiritual headship this way. He said that spiritual headship is God telling the woman to duck so that he can punch the man. It's pretty blunt, but like, that's kind of the, the, what we have uh, on us, men, as far as the responsibility and the burden here, that you will have to give an account before the Lord based on the leadership of your marriage and within the home. And so for you, as you lead your wife and make decisions, we, we want to err on the side of dying to preferences, but when they are weighty, you govern your marriage and your household the way that best honors the Lord. Like, just practically speaking, I think I can count on one hand or maybe two fingers the amount of times that I've had to use the Ephesians 5 trump card with Lindsay. Like, it just doesn't happen that often. Because if I'm leading well, I'm recognizing her gifts and her strengths, where she's right and I'm wrong, and and the very few cases where I'm right and she's wrong, and, and we kind of make decisions that way. There's a lot more I could say on this, but this is the first thing I want to put in the box of biblical manhood within, within marriage. Here's another thing I want to talk about, about the role of the husband, is husbands, we need to have a loving provision that leads to flourishments, a loving provision that leads to flourishment. Now, way back in the garden, we looked at this last week, but in Genesis 2, before Eve was created, we see that Adam had a job. Okay, Adam was working, right? He was tending to the garden. He was naming the animals, and he had this environment of flourishment, right? It was before, then Eve was created, right? And then Eve was given to marriage with Adam. So Eve was walking into this environment where she could thrive. Now, this isn't an argument that women should never work outside the home or women shouldn't make more money than men. What I'm saying here, this principle is far deeper than that. What I'm trying to say is, for husbands, the question that we have to answer is, is the environment that we're creating for our spouse, is it an environment where they can thrive physically, emotionally, and spiritually? Is there a way where they can use their gifts, where they can flourish best? And husbands, that environment that you're creating, that is on you. Like you are called to set the vision, not called maybe to to implement every aspect and to get in the weeds. Again, you're probably going to empower your wife to do some things, but you are setting the course, you are putting things in order, and you are ensuring that this environment within your marriage and in your home is one in which your spouse can flourish best. Now let's break that down a little bit. All right, let's talk about just physically, right, providing for our spouses. Husbands, I think we do this pretty well. Right? We live in a culture that, uh, that you know, husbands do this well. Our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers, even who aren't followers of Jesus, do this well. Providing for them you know, with, with food, clothing, shelter, money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think we do that pretty well. But look, that cannot be the bar of manhood. That cannot be the, the standard of what we say. Okay, I've provided for her physically. Like, I'm done. I'm good. I can check out, watch TV the, the rest of the night. And It's all on the woman here on out. Right? Like that is really the bare minimum uh, of what biblical headship and leadership is all about. So I think there's another aspect as, as, far, as far as we think about creating this environment of flourishment that involves an emotional component. That husbands, and we're not very good at this, but husbands, we are called to do what Paul says in verse 29 to cherish and to nourish our wives. That we are to instill more and more confidence in them that our heart is for them and them alone, right? We intentionally pursue them, we cherish them, we value them, we encourage them so that there's this emotional stability that's created in your marriage for your wife to flourish, right? We're not creating these emotional environments of fear, right? We want them to feel safe and validated and affirmed. And so what this means, husbands, is that we communicate to our wives that we are for them, that we encourage them, and that we actually listen to them, right? Not, not, not the type of listening where we just wait for our turn to talk, right, and then solve whatever problem that our, our wives are venting to us about. And just, just for clarity's sake, when, when your wife is, you know, presenting an issue or a problem to you, Most of the time, they're not actually looking for you to fix that problem, right? In most cases, our wives are probably smarter than us. And at least what I've learned in my marriage, when Lindsay's venting about a problem or an issue, what she wants in that moment is not for me to solve that problem. What she wants is for me to listen to her in such a way that that communicates that I understand her heart, not just the problem, but her heart and that I'm for her, and that I'm with her, and that I'm going to encourage her along the way. Look, husbands, if I could be just a little bit direct here, and and just provide an observation that you probably will agree with, I think far too often we come home from work, and we are giving our wives emotional leftovers. I think when we come home, we, we tend to just kind of give them sloppy seconds. And look, I know work is demanding. I know that kids can be draining. But when you are home, you need to make it your goal to be present with your wife, engaging with her heart. That means putting down the phone, you know, stopping work, you know, turning off the TV, and, and being present and looking your wife in the eyes and saying, how was your day? What gave you joy today? What, what discouraged you today? And creating this environment for her to flourish, to feel that you are with her, and to feel a type of safety in that marriage. Thirdly, another, I think, way that we can apply this of creating an environment for our wives to flourish is by spiritually leading our homes that when we think about what this actually looks like in our homes and we and we think about what Paul is saying here in verses 25 through 27 I think men are responsible for the spiritual climate of the home that as we kind of come around our wives and our children and we pour into them spiritually that I think is what it means to wash our wives with the word of God for their growth now does this mean that we open up the bible every day and we parse out the Greek and the Hebrew. Like, no, like, this doesn't mean that you whip out your dissertation on your eschatological views on pre mill, post and all mill with your family at dinner time. That's not what this means. But what this means at the bare minimum is that you do open up the Word of God every day, that you demonstrate before your wife and before your kids a type of relationship with the Lord where they look at that and they say, I want that. Daddy prays to the Lord in such a way that it's contagious and that it's impacting my soul. That your wife should look at the way that you're in the word and the way that you desperately pray to the Lord. And your wife should say, man, I want that kind of intimacy that he has. And look, husbands, I know this might be the weakest maybe in, in, our, in our marriages of, of how do we lead and how do we navigate this, especially if you didn't have a father who modeled this great for you but let me just ask you a couple of questions just to kind of guide what to do and what should be kind of your priority as you think about spiritually leading. Here's, here's question number one. Does your wife and kids see you dependent on the word and prayer? Look, you know this better than I do. Things are better caught than taught, especially in the home. And so for, for us to spiritually lead, like your kids and your wife, they need to see you model A dependency upon the word of God and prayer where they conclude, man, a non-negotiable high priority for daddy is to spend time with God, not just to watch the Colts game, but to be in the word and praying every single day. Secondly, another helpful question, I think, to guide this is, do you model consistent repentance with your wife and kids? Look, spiritual leadership, please don't hear me say this this morning, spiritual leadership it is not about being perfect, right? None of us are, are perfect. We are all in process as we think about this. But what spiritual leadership is all about is it is modeling your need for grace in front of your wife and your kids. It is taking the unlimited grace of God and showing them how to connect that to your own soul. Right? And that, a lot of times, has to be modeled before we actually learn what that looks like. Like, your kids need to see you own your sin, ask for forgiveness, for, for fear that they think that grace to receive is just swiping the grace card, right? I think that's so many issues within our youth is because they haven't seen daddy model a, a genuine, humble, broken repentance before the Lord, Thirdly, another question to ask yourself about your spiritual leadership is, are you regularly connecting the Bible to everyday living? Regularly connecting the Bible to everyday living. And what I mean by this is applying Scripture to various situations that you go through in life and the decisions that you make, right? So often we are trying to make these decisions, and we tend to fall into the category of what's logical What's pragmatic? What's realistic? And there's a role for those things, but do we put as the foundation of our decision making? What does the Bible actually say about this? And to apply these biblical principles to these decisions that are creating a culture within our home? Can I just confess something to you? I I I used to be really really bad at this. Like in my marriage, you know, I don't know if it's because I've been in seminary or being a pastor. I I would just come home and just preach at Lindsay and, and just and feel like that's what it means to spiritual lead. Here's my five-minute monologue here, and we're just going to set things in order here. And I had, a, had, I had a, a mentor, as I was kind of explaining what this looks like, looked me in the eye and say, Chris, you just need to shut up at home. You need to shut up and listen to your wife and model obedience of what the Word of God actually says and allow the, the, the Spirit of God to use that in your spiritual leadership. And so much more I could say about this. But in summary here, husbands are called to carry the burden of responsibility for the flourishment of the home. Thirdly, another thing I'm going to drop in the box here is that husbands, we need to have a, a humble pursuit of our wives shaped by an intimate knowledge of her. There's a verse in Scripture that I love and that I strongly dislike. It's 1 Peter 3, 7, and it's one of the most challenging verses for me as a husband. It says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What I think this verse means here for us practically, husbands, is that we are called to be lifelong students of our wives, that we are to live with a kind of knowledge and awareness of how our wives are wired about their strengths and their weaknesses, and because of that knowledge, it directly impacts how we live and how we lead them. I was thinking about how to explain this. You know, just even applying this word, this verse to the workplace can kind of make sense for us as husbands. Like when you're trying to think about how do I live with my boss in an understanding way? Like for us husbands, that comes a lot more, that comes naturally for us to think about okay, I'm going to put the time and the energy and the intentionality in figuring out what pleases my boss, and then I'm just going to throw myself into that right? And I know many of you, many of you are are, are very successful in your careers because you live with your boss in an understanding way, and you're flourishing in the workplace. And my question for you today is, are you putting forth the same amount of time, energy, and intentionality pursuing your wife, figuring out what pleases them, and throwing yourself into that? Look, husbands, If you put forth the same time, energy, and intentionality at the workplace as you do with your spouse, do you think you would be fired in a couple of days? Look, I know that's kind of a heavy and direct question, but are you giving your wife the priority that she demands in Scripture in order for you to live out your role with grace and truth? Like so many of us husbands, we do so well in the workplace, and then we come home, and and we tend to kind of turn it off and and not be all in for our spouse. And we need to be lifelong students of our wives, pursuing them with all that we are. Let me get a little bit more specific with this. Just to be more helpful, let me give you a couple of areas to study your wife and to grow in this knowledge and this understanding. Here's number one, study your wife by knowing her spiritual shape, right? This takes observing her. This takes asking specific questions about her relationship with the Lord so that you have a constant awareness of her spiritual temperature. Husbands, you need to know, is this a time in which I need to encourage my wife or is this a time where I need to exhort her? Is she in a place where she's not applying the word to specific temptations? Do I need to lean into that right now? Husbands, you need to know her prayer life, what she's reading in the Word, in a way to best connect with her spiritually. Secondly, I think another area to study our wives in is by knowing her emotional condition. To pursue her heart, to know her burdens, to know her joys, to know if, if her love tank needs to be filled up and, and how. How? We need to know our wives' fears and anxieties and insecurities and, and their friendships and these influences from the world that are shaping her and then enter into that space and be present. Like One of the most practical ways to be able to connect with our wives spiritually and emotionally is just through consistent date nights. And I know that sounds so basic and simple, but when you have kids, it gets really hard and you feel exhausted Like, man, like, I just want to sit here and and do nothing. I I don't really want to have a deep heart-level conversation. But look, our our marriages need it. We need an unhurried, undistracted, heart-level conversation. And those date nights outside the home tend to be where that happens. And then thirdly here, and I'll close with this, is that you need to study your wife by knowing how to best connect and communicate with her. This, again, this is hard. This is hard for me. It's not just knowing what to say, but knowing how to say it and when to say it, right? It's knowing your wife well enough to know what kind of posture, what kind of tone do I need right here where she can receive what I have to say. Husbands, you've got to be committed to conflict resolution in a way that, that mirrors what biblical manhood is all about, not what it means to be a boy, Right? You need to practice the, the principles of fighting fair and, and deferring and loving and serving your wife. One of my mentors gave me su- such great advice years ago that when you're having a, a healthy marital discussion with your spouse, to just stop and ask them, babe, I'm hearing you say this and, and this is what's burdening your heart right now. Is that accurate? And, and just stopping, just trying to get a line o- on the same page and not assuming that you're right and she's wrong. Well, there's so much more I could say about this, and I'm so excited for those of you who signed up for the Re-Engage marriage ministry that's happening this fall to be able to take a, a deeper dive into what these roles look like. But husbands, I just want you to know that your calling to be a godly husband has to be your highest priority. That for you to be a godly husband is not just icing on the cake for what it means to have a good life, but when it comes to your priorities, this has to be number one. And the reason for that is because if, if you fail in, in this role, then the danger is that you're going to fall back into exactly what happened in Genesis 3 with the first role reversal that ever took place. In Genesis 3, you have Adam who was tasked to, to make sure that they not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember, that, that was given to Adam before Eve was created. And so Adam's role and responsibility, his leadership was to pass that along to Eve and protect her and to lead her in that way. And yet that's not what we see in Genesis three. We we see that, that Adam becomes passive. It's not that Adam did something wrong. Like he he just didn't lead. Like it wasn't a sin of commission. It was actually a sin of omission. I think for us as husbands, we think, man, to be a godly husband, I'm going to provide things physically and just avoid bad things. And that's good, but there's so much more involved with this. See, in Genesis 3, verse 6, it tells us that Adam was actually with Eve in that whole dialogue that she had with the serpent. But he wasn't leading, that Eve was on the front lines of spiritual battle, not Adam that Eve was the one who was trying to apply scripture in the midst of a temptation, not Adam. They fall into sin, then God comes to Adam and Eve and speaks directly to Adam the man in verse nine and says, where are you? Such a haunting question for us husbands, isn't it? And I think what what God was trying to say there is, Adam, where were you back there? Adam, why weren't you leading back there? Why weren't you protecting your wife? Why weren't you responding with, with my words in the midst of that temptation and speaking back to the serpent, telling him, look, you don't, you don't talk to my wife that way. You don't distort God's word that way. Our marriage is founded, and the foundation here is the word of God that is true and trustworthy, and you need to leave. Look, husbands, we got these two dangers that we're trying to avoid, being selfishly passive and being sinfully aggressive. Right? We can tend to just you know, sit back and let our wives do the leading, or we tend to be overly oppressive and sometimes abusive. And what God is calling us to is biblical manhood. This is what the world needs. This is what the church needs. So husbands, I don't know if you're here today and if you can hear the Lord asking you that question of where are you? Where are you in your leadership, in your home, and in your marriage? Because look, we we cannot overemphasize the importance and the influence of a godly husband and father. Look, just statistically speaking, if the child is the first person to come to faith in Christ in the family, only three uh, percent, the three percent chance of the rest of the family coming to faith in Jesus. If the wife is the first to come as a believer, then there's only a 17% of the rest of the family coming to faith in Jesus. But for the husband, for the father, there's a 90% chance of the rest of the family coming to faith in Jesus if he is the first. So husbands, let me encourage you as we close. Don't allow anything to belittle the God-given influence that you have in your home, in your marriage and in this world. Don't let the enemy, don't let your insecurities, your past failures, don't allow being intimidated by your wife because she might be smarter or knows more scripture than you, to rob you of your impact, to lead your home that can literally change the world. Husbands, let me also encourage you with this fact. If you're feeling just the sense of, man, I can't do this, this is too much, this is overwhelming, This job description is something that's way over my pay grade. If you're feeling that right now, look, you're in great company. That is exactly where I think God wants you to be, to not rely on your self-sufficiency and your pride, but to come face-to-face with your weaknesses and your failures so that creates a type of desperation for God and his grace in your life. You know what I found interesting in this text here? Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33 is sandwiched between verse 18 of the command to be filled with the Spirit of God, and then chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, with put on the full armor of God. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul is telling us, husbands, you can't do this on your own. You need the Spirit of God to fill you, and you need the full armor of God to lead in the way that you need to lead. So husbands allow your weaknesses and your shortcomings to be the mechanism by which God brings you to your needs, your knees, where you can be filled with the spirit and put on the full armor of God. Let's pray together. As we close today, I just want to say uh, just a couple of things to the wives here. Wives, we desperately need you in our lives. Like, wives, we, we need you to encourage us and to support us. We need you to be our, our, our primary cheerleaders as we do this. Wives, you need to know that your husband, what he's thinking right now is, oh my goodness, I have failed in this area, in that area, in this area. And what he needs more than anything is for you to encourage him and to consistently pray for him. And so as we close today, before we, we sing this last song, just want to give us a minute or two for the wife, if you're in a a situation in your marriage right now where you can put your arm around your husband right now, would you do so and just intercede for him and just to pray some of these truths into his soul? Because look, he needs you desperately. And so let's just do that over the next couple of minutes, just wives praying over for the husband. If you're here and you're, you're single, you don't have a husband, would you pray for the men in this room to be the type of men that we desperately need in this church, in this world. Oh God, that is our prayer for the men in this room that we would take off our own weak and inadequate armor and that we would put on your armor and stand firm in your might. God, would you remind us that we are in a spiritual battle with a real enemy who wants to take us down and he wants to start with the marriages and with the husbands. So, God, we pray that you'd help the husbands to fight every day, to engage in this battle. And, God, where we fail, would you give us grace and humility to repent and to get back up again. We pray for that to happen in our marriages so that the gospel might be displayed. We pray this in Jesus' name.